0: there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hi there. So I'm recording the introduction to this show from Boston, where I'm travelling with work at the moment. Uh, first time I've recorded outside of Ireland, which is mm, doesn't really mean anything, but just that I'd say it. Uh, this episode is focusing on business and entrepreneurship. Lots of really good insights and tips from Pat Lucy, who is the CEO of Aspira Consulting uh, based out of Cork. I met Pat through the Project Management Institute of Ireland a few years ago and we struck up uh, a good friendship. And I was delighted to have him on as one of the first uh, guests that I recorded back in January of this year. So Pat uh, talks about his early years. He talks about uh, becoming an engineer, then working in Motorola, uh, moving into project management, and then taking the leap of faith to become an entrepreneur, setting up his own business, which has been up and running for the last 10 years and has grown massively over that period of time. He talks about interesting experiences he's had along that journey. Pat has a very good sense of humor. He tells his Story with uh, an element of that coming out for sure, and I think it's uh, yeah definitely one of the the more lighter but also enjoyable ones that uh, I recorded so far. Sorry to Pat for having to wait for so long for me to actually get round to putting this out there. I did want to build up massive listenership, which obviously now I have before we put it out uh, to help Pat uh, get more. A claim than he uh, already has so enough of me talking i hope you enjoy this episode which is the ninth of the series so far and i would like to ask for feedback please keep giving me that Uh, i don't think i'm getting as enough and i would love more and uh hope you enjoy i am uh, very much happy to say that i'm here with pat lucy from aspira in his uh salubrious offices in in little Island, just outside of cork city so welcome pat thanks very much rob so pat today i guess we're going to get a kind of an overview of who pat lucy is where you came from um, uh, the journey you're on right up to now and hopefully share some uh, you can share some learnings that uh, people can take away and maybe implement in their own professional or personal lives i'm sure you have lots of nuggets to share so looking forward to hearing that
1: Okay, I wish I shared your confidence about that, but okay.
0: no, no, by the end of it, you'll be bouncing with confidence. So, so probably, yeah, maybe let's start um, at the start or in the early okay. days of uh, uh, you growing up. Can you talk a little bit about where you're from and things that stick out in the uh, early years?
1: Sure. Well, Rob, uh, welcome. I'm delighted to chat to you. As you've come into my office, I hope you notice my Limerick hurling jersey from uh, a previous All-Ireland over there. So that's straight away. That tells you where I'm from. Success. Uh, Patrick Swell, County Limerick, born there and uh, spent my first 20 years in, in Limerick. Um, my parents were from Kilkenny and Kerry. So two parts of Ireland that have lots of sporting success, which mm-hmm. made up for a lot of the lack of success that we had in Limerick at the time. Right. Um, My parents both had to emigrate in the early 50s to England to get work, and that's where they met and married, and then they came back to Ireland and bought a small shop and uh, petrol station, gas station, in Patrickswell, just before I was born. I think I was born maybe a year after they moved back. So my childhood was all about uh, growing up, going over to the shop, uh, manning the the petrol station, uh, as I think... At one stage, my mother was afraid that the petrol might flow back and go into my eyes because I was just at that height uh, giving petrol to people. Child (laughs) labour at this stage. (laughs) So that's 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 why I'm a big fan of child labour now, (laughs) yeah, despite my kids' um, objections. So uh, I guess my formative years were very much influenced by that. The fact that we had a neighbourhood store, um, you know, small business, we would all be called into action. I have two sisters as well, so we would all be working there. Was, um, all hands
0: on the pump, quite literally. Quite Sorry, literally, yeah. yeah pump I, pump
1: I, thing, so. <laughs> it's where I learned to fix punctures and deal with people. But it was a great learning because you get to deal with all different people coming in. And it was only many years subsequently that I appreciated some of the lessons I learned at that time. Because I spent you know, a large part of my professional career working in a multinational environment. And it was only when I then went up and set up my own business that some of the early lessons from being part of the family business uh, came back dealing with suppliers and vendors and yeah. negotiating when people won't pay you and all that kind of stuff um and the other piece i guess i learned there was the work ethic the my father was every morning shop open 7 a.m and wouldn't be back in back home again until you know 9 10 p.m in the evening and that was 364 days a year so Christmas Day was the only day that he would be in the house so Mm. it always made Christmas a special day for us Mm. and he would only be happy when somebody knocked on the door because they'd run out of petrol and he needed to go and open up and and give them petrol or sell batteries or whatever Uh, he always could relax on Christmas Day then once he had done something like that Mm. Um, and my mother was very much uh, doing the accounts doing the bookkeeping doing the the back office administration piece of it Mm. and my first foray into using computers, was trying to build a little uh, software on my my Commodore 64 to see if I could help with the accounts or a little program to help automate oh, yeah. some of the accounting for them. So you
0: were bit of a techie so, at, at heart as well? So
1: you? certainly that, that was, uh, I think, around in the early 80s when the ZX81 came out. I got one, I think I was about 12 at the time, and uh, got into it, and then the Commodore 64, and... Mm-hmm. I remember having a debate in my early days in college with a guy he was going, trying to decide whether he would buy a pc with uh, a 10 mega uh bit hard drive or 20 meg hard drive right. and we both decided that nobody would ever need a 20 meg hard, hard drive, drive so ten was fine you right. know <laughs> so bad. that's uh, I'm aging myself there no i
0: remember i remember buying an amiga in the late eighties early nineties and It was a half meg of RAM. I remember buying a half meg upgrade to make it a one meg RAM. Um, And, you know, it it obviously doubled the capacity of everything. And, yeah, obviously things have moved on. You see, I
1: I, I, I was just envious of people with Amigas, you know. Plus I had no shoes to wear to school.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So that was the early years, I suppose. When you were growing up at that point, did you have a clear idea of what you might want to do in, in your later career or in your, in your life you know,
1: what did you want to um, well my, uh, my primary school goal was to be an astronaut as I'm sure most people <laughs> are, at that age were and actually it's been really interesting in the last couple of years the likes of Chris Hadfield the Canadian astronaut has, mm. has reinvigorated some of the interest in space because it seemed to it became totally uncool yeah. whereas now um, some of the, the video clips he was sending down from, uh, from his time in the space station has generated a lot of interest again mm. uh, I think once I was in secondary school uh, maths was always my thing. I was always very strong in that area, and I decided. And then the computers came along. So, with my interest in maths and love of computers. That was the area I decided I wanted to go into. So, okay. electronic engineering was what I did in, in college. In because, Cork? Um, no, in Limerick. All oh, right, sorry. Um, again, I know you're living in Cork now, know, Rob, but it's, it's not the centre of the universe. We, we all know Limerick is the, the centre of the well, universe. Well, I am
0: from Longford, but, you know,
1: <laughs> that's, that's that, the heart of Ireland. That's memory. one of the orbiting planets, yeah. <laughs> that's another nice day's conversation. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I did that in uh, what was NIHE, now University of Limerick. Um, and it was quite, you know, it was quite an exciting time. There was lots going on. You had companies like Wang and Digital who mm. were both uh, big in that whole area. And it's funny how the, those companies come and go over time. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the guys that I would have got, I mean, back then it still wasn't that common to go to college. I would say about 15% of my final year at school went to college 15 yeah 15 oh, okay. so I guess now it's, flip it's, it's yeah, like. yeah, yeah I'd say it's the reverse which is great there's far more opportunity for people so um, it was you know we were relatively privileged to, to get to go to college mm-hmm. and it's funny as I bump into people now on occasion and tools like LinkedIn are great for catching up with people it's, mm-hmm. it's you can see how that education has been a benefit, that people are, you know, a lot of my former colleagues uh, or classmates are in positions of, of seniority all over the globe now at this stage. So yeah. uh, it's good to see that the education has been put to some use.
0: Cool. And like when you went into like Eng, did you feel at home, was this this is a, a good fit for you or was there always something or was there anything thinking, oh, maybe this wasn't exactly what I had hoped it would be?
1: Yeah, well, it was quite broad. I mean, I, we did things like computer hardware, computer software, telecoms. Um, it was the I was less interested in the hardware and the circuit board side of things, more interested in software and telecoms. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on to do a masters in uh, in telecoms engineering. At the, after that, just that had kind of piqued my interest. Mm-hmm. So from that point on, it was the software world and the telecoms world that uh, I focused on.
0: Coming out of college then your first first big career position where, so, did you start so at
1: that stage it was pretty tough to get a job in ireland that was the late 80s early 90s um so i went to munich went to working with siemens in germany and i think that was 1989 um at the time a lot of people from ireland went to either germany or to holland or to phillips to to get jobs right. as well so uh, so that was exciting. It was interesting. My first time living away somewhere. Um, had you German? Uh, I hadn't done German. I had done French at school. So yeah. I did, a, a, I think, a three-month night class or something in German. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could ask where were the toilets and what's the way to the train station. That was one pretty... It in some <laughs>
0: because that <laughs> sticks with me as well. You know.
1: So, uh, but what was funny was when I was with Siemens, English was very much the language of work that we're using in the office was English. And I shared an apartment with a couple of other guys and they just wanted to practice their English all the time. So I think uh, the, the amount of German I used was pretty trivial. And mm-hmm. as a result, I, some of the big moments of history bypassed me because um, I was there when, when the Berlin Wall came down. Mm-hmm. I was in Munich and came back to my apartment and turned on the TV and saw what was the Berlin Wall uh, being uh, dismantled yeah. and people being dragged over it. And I presumed, with my lack of German, this was a riot somewhere and I flicked over to MTV, you know, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. missed uh, history happening that, that evening. But uh, I remember the next day, just the, the general euphoria that there was around the place that mm. this had happened and that a country could be reunited again. Mm. So um, it, was, uh, it was fantastic to be there at that time, wonderful atmosphere. It didn't take long for, for some of the atmosphere to change when some of the problems of immigration and suddenly... Loads more people hanging around and, and people without a lot of money and mm. causing social problems. But certainly for that first few days, it was just unbridled joy and mm. it was fantastic to be there. Cool.
0: And so that that role was
1: very much still technical? Yeah. Yeah. I was a ISDN application engineer over with Siemens. So it was a technical role. And my next role was, um, as more jobs were coming in Ireland, I, I interviewed... For a role with Ericsson in Athlone and with Motorola in Cork, because I was keen to to come back to Ireland, mm-hmm. and um, and got both and decided I would go to Cork because uh, Cork was closer to Limerick, obviously as right. its its main advantage, right. and um, started there at the very end of 1990, I think was when I started in Motorola, and that was again as a software engineer working in the yeah. telecom space. So it was a company that had set up, they had set up uh, in the 80s in Cork and there were about 50 or 60 people there at that stage. Mm. So over the next 10 years, that grew to over 500 people that that were in Motorola over the years.
0: And at this point, I guess... People would probably link Motorola obviously mostly with mobile phones. As there at that at that stage, what was there like a, an early generation mobile phone that was being used or? Yes. Of-
1: so when I started there, it would have been car phones that were the most common. People, some people had car phones which were installed in your car. You wouldn't, mm. you know, when you parked your car, you didn't have it to carry around with you. Mm-hmm. So it was over the next two or three years that it became more common to have the actual portable phones and um, they were pretty brick-sized phones, so they were handy if you are going to be mugged. You could use them for self-defense. They weren't like the, the ones we have now. Yeah. Um, and it was only in that time as well, it was the early 90s, might be 91, 92, that GSM came out, mm-hmm. which was a big revolution because up to then, if you had a mobile phone or a car phone, it would only work in your area, your jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So in Ireland, you couldn't go with your... 088 phone and use it anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with the GSM technology, it, it was a pan-European agreement that then spread all over the world. So suddenly it meant your phone now work in the UK or in parts of America mm. or Asia or, you know, all over Europe. Yeah. So that that played a huge part in making phones the ubiquitous tool of choice yeah. now for for everybody in business, at least. And the roaming charges, obviously, around then were very, very manageable not, at the time. Well, not even roaming charges. I mean, to make a call with your mobile, it was like 40 or 50 pence yeah. uh, a minute just to call a number. Local call, call number. Even. Local Yeah. Call, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I remember it's funny now looking back, Motorola were a very, um, they were number one in worldwide for mobile phone uh, technology then. But they were always very um, futuristic and they're talking about displacing landline calls. So people would use their mobiles rather than their landlines. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, no, it'll never happen. Why the hell would anybody do that? It's much more expensive. Yeah. And now the idea of having a landline, you know, most people don't even have one. Yeah. So uh, also I remember seeing a video promotion uh, in the mid 90s that Motorola put together showing how people would be using data on phones and showing people going shopping and video doing a video call and, back yeah. home to see and again thinking well this is never going to happen but there you go it was it was Star Trek stuff to us back then mm. and now look at our kids and so what they do it's 20 years I guess. Right? it's so, not even yeah, yeah it's about 15 years ago so um I guess the one of the messages there for me was you know, not to, not to dismiss innovation or the need for it. And if you don't innovate, you're gone. Mm. And it's 10 years ago this month that Steve Jobs came out on stage holding the first iPhone. Mm. And that was a big factor for us in Motorola because up to then, Motorola had decided mm. people don't want touchscreen phones. People just want smaller phones. Mm. Because the, um, the trend was
0: smaller, smaller, yeah. smaller. And that was yeah. the first kind of thing that was yeah. going back. It, it, yeah, so
1: people were trying know? to get... Like, I had a mobile phone that was about the size of a chewing gum packet. And it was really cool, except I always lost it. It was so small, it was mm. to fall out of your pocket and go yeah. behind the couch. So um, with, when Apple came out with the iPhone, it changed everything. Within three months, all the Motorola programs had to stop. And, and then an investigation into coming up with a touchscreen phone. Mm and smartphones and everything else. So that's been a huge revolution. That's only 10 years old. Wow.
0: And was it that they got complacent, do you think, in that this was the way and that was it? They weren't innovative enough? They weren't putting enough resources on the future or yeah, it's, just milking the cash cow, I guess, was it? I,
1: so I wouldn't say that. I think there's a lot of case studies written. Um, and one of the issues that I can see that Motorola's a great company, a great technology company, I think uh, they weren't as good a marketing company. You know, they weren't as focused on, on that side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they would get tied up with solving technology problems uh, and take their eye off the ball in terms of what was going to sell. Yeah. Um, and they also had the, the problem of warring tribes. So the Motorola uh, management philosophy was to promote warring tribes. In other words, that you'd have different uh parts of the company that would compete with each other that would try to outdo each other and that it was survival of the fittest mentality uh, and i think that that has certain validity except when it gets to the stage where it's more important to beat your 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 your, your colleague than it is to beat your competitors right. and it, i think maybe that had become the issue that there was too much infighting and not enough okay. uh, collaboration going on mm. but it's you know in this area it's notoriously difficult because Nokia came along and pretty much stole the, the, the march in the cellular space the mobile network space from Motorola but if you look over the last few years the same exact same thing has happened to Nokia yeah. so it's uh, you know sometimes I think it's like the Tour de France it Anybody can get into the lead, but being able to stay in the lead for a long time is the challenge. You know? And they obviously, need to take lots of drugs to, to stay. There <laughs> as well, so, um, no comment.
0: Supposedly, anyway. I know. I know you through kind of the PMI, there's project management connections. There mm. at this stage in your career, you, you haven't. You've been very much left brain and very analytical and tech tech focused. When did the project management? Um, appeal come come into your career
1: so in my time with motorola um i suspect i was probably out in the toilet when i came back i was told oh you're the project manager (laughs) for this thing so i think that often happens the so again if you go back 20 years project management wasn't a profession Mm -hmm. it was something that someone had to do right Uh, and if you showed any organizational skills you would often be asked to do it so I think it's changed a bit now project management is recognized as a profession and you can go and study and get certified as project manager but still the most common way that people become project manager is first of all through doing their job whether that's an IT job or being an accountant or HR or whatever your your role in life is at some point if you show any interest or, or propensity for organizing and planning and controlling you might Get an opportunity to project manage mm-hmm. so i would be a bit of a control freak and a quick way i can suggest you test that is when you go home see who has to have the tv remote control right okay. if in my house if somebody else has it i'm never quite happy i always want to be the one because in my own mind nobody can can fast forward through the the ad breaks just as quickly as i can you know yeah. so that's a sign that you want your wannabe project manager so as as well as my um pm role i sorry before i went into a formal pm role I was uh, the director of the the quality team, and uh, then I was asked to take over the the project management team and build that up and set up a PMO. So, as part of doing that, I wanted all of my project managers to get certified, and I thought, well, if I'm going to ask them to do it, I better show a bit of leadership here and go do it myself. Mm -hmm. So, I went off and went through the training. And that was a PMP, I guess. It it was a project management diploma that I did, actually, here in UCC, and... Uh, what I got from that was the realization that geez, a lot of the things that I had done, that I had called initiatives, were actually projects. Mm-hmm. And maybe if I had managed them as projects, they would have been more successful, or at least there would have been fewer failures. Yeah. So some of the tools and techniques that we learned in project management, I thought were really good. Were common sense. You know, not once once you took away the fancy name, they were tools that you could just use to make life easier for you. Yeah. So I became a huge fan of of project management and its techniques after that. Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up heading up the, the project management division for uh, one of the Motorola businesses, which was very interesting because we had, oh, I think it was about 1,200, 1,400 people worldwide and we were managing, uh, I was responsible for projects where we had people in nine different countries in the Far East, in the States, mm-hmm. Europe asia lots of challenges that you have with global teams yeah. so it was really interesting and the, the skills we learned through project management a lot of them are common sense and then a lot of them are things that you know there's a light bulb moment they're saying yeah okay that that's how to do this you know mm-hmm. and i have found now you know through my work with the PMI and my day job when we try to push project management principles on people it's people who have been through it, people who have had a few battle scars from working mm. on projects, maybe working on projects that failed, they can see. They're the ones who see the most benefit from this. Yeah. I think if you're talking to somebody straight from college, they're treating it more as an academic thing. They're taking, you know, scribbling down lots of notes, but it mightn't uh, resonate with them as much as mm. it will with the person who has, you know, devoted a year of their lives to a project that went down the tubes, you know, yeah, and yeah. Uh, then you can see how some of these tools and techniques would have helped. Cool.
0: So I think from listening through it, you've got a good experience from the technical side. You're getting more exposure then in the, those last few years around the project side. Mm. Has all of this been part of the the bigger plan to set up your own business? Was it something that happened, you know, look or design? Where are you so, from there?
1: So I would say it's a series of uh, accidents, you know. So I, I would describe myself as an accidental entrepreneur, right? Good, good. Um, but uh, if I was trying to make it sound more sophisticated, I would say that it's emergent strategy, right? So I had a, a high-level idea and then rolled with the punches. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, um, you know, from my background and from my family being self-employed and business, I guess, I always had an interest in running my own business. Um, but that had been forgotten. When I was in the multinational world, I was you know, up to my neck in projects, you know, putting in long hours, very focused on that. Mm-hmm. No master plan for, you know, setting up anything. Right. Um, and when, with the, you know, I guess not directly unrelated to uh, Apple coming out with their iPhones, Motorola decided to shut down the, the site in Ireland and to mm-hmm. pull out. Yeah. So at that point... And um, that was uh, it wasn't quite a bolt from the blue because you know you can you can read some of these things in the in the winds yeah but uh, it wasn't as if I had a, a master plan I'd been working on for years uh, and in fact, when I was cleaning out my office, I was seventeen years in Motorola uh, I found the CV that I had uh, submitted there okay. uh, and it was quite funny reading it uh, because down at the bottom I had said someday I would like to set up my own company know nice. I was going Jesus that's been knocked out of me since then. But was it, it was it a line that you thought you actually
0: put down just to, to show this guy's you know, f- forward thinking to impress the uh, interviewer? Or was it something it, you think at the time was it, probably... It, it you know, had
1: probably popped into my head five minutes before I wrote my CV yeah. 17 years ago, you know, because uh, it's funny, it's not something I see on a lot of CVs now yeah. as I look at them, you know. So mm-hmm. God knows what I was thinking. But um, it certainly, it kind of resonated with me again because yeah. I felt at that stage of my career... Um, I would not have jumped. I wouldn't have had the courage to jump and set up a business. Right um, Now, I had been pushed along with everybody else. So yeah, yeah. my thinking was, well, will I go and try to get another job or will I use this as an opportunity to try to set up my own business? Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't do it now. You know, I probably never will. Yeah. So, But I was S- scared. I didn't want to do it by myself. Um, I, I'm the kind of person I would be... Uh, an extrovert problem solver. I like to talk things through with other people rather than sit in the room on my own figuring mm-hmm. it out. So I uh, I actually contacted three of the guys that work closely with me and asked right. them, would any of them be interested? And we got into a room together and had a chat. Okay. And then one of them afterwards came to me and said he'd been asked by another guy, something similar. And another, he was part of another group before who got into a room and had a chat. Okay. So And he felt that between the two groups, we should all get together. So right. that was seven of us who got together and had a chat. Very quickly, a couple of the guys pulled out because they got job offers and they went. The stability and we were left yeah. with a core team of four. Right. So the four of us went and did uh, a feasibility study. We got some support from Enterprise Ireland to investigate creating a product. And the product was something that... Uh, I had done a lot of work on, in my Motorola time. Uh, or the problem was uh, trying to overcome that problem in Motorola time, and we thought we might be able to come up with a product that would yeah. do that. So we did the feasibility study for a couple of months, and in that time, we went out and talked to a lot of companies to find out would they be interested in this product. Which was a parametric software estimation tool, just for your. For I was kind of afraid <laughs> to ask, but it some
0: um, challenges.
1: So, uh, so, what we learned in that feasibility was that A, yes, we could do it because we did build a, a proof of concept, and B, nobody would buy it because when we spoke to people, they were saying, well, oh, that sounds interesting, but what I really would like is someone who can manage risk better or better okay. way of doing schedules or whatever. Yeah. So, doing the feasibility while it meant we felt we wouldn't build that product. It did give us confidence that there were lots of people out there who would be customers for our project management knowledge. Okay. So it was with that knowledge we set up the business. At that stage, of the four of us, one of the guys decided he was going to go to Australia for a year to emigrate. Right. And the other guy got a job with um, a large smartphone manufacturer with a base in cork okay. so that left us with two so i right. was Colin Morgan and myself so we founded the company Excellent. in 2007 and we hired four developers from motorola to work with us from right from day one um and again when you've worked with people you know who the people are that you want on your team mm-hmm. so uh, we said you know, we we would go and try to get the guys and we got four. So six of us started back in May 2007. So
0: nearly 10
1: years ago. 10 years, coming yeah, up to yeah, 10 years, yeah. 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 So of that six, four of us are still together. Uh, so two of the guys moved on over the next couple of years, but the, the, the other four of us are still working here. Excellent. And I think by the end of 2007, we had 10 people and eight of those 10 are still here with us today. So we've managed to, to hang on to people. So when you went... And set up the own business. Had you done any start your own business course or were you flying by the seat of your pants,
0: as they sometimes say?
1: Yeah, so we, when Motorola were shutting down, uh, in some ways it was fortuitous because there was a general election coming up in Ireland in 2007, the same month. The the minister responsible for enterprise and employment was based in Cork. Mm -hmm. So he had basically told the agencies, do whatever you can to get these guys to help them get trained or get work or set up companies. So um, they set up, they ran a start your own business course for anybody who's interested. So there were, I think there were 11 uh, startup businesses that came out of Motorola that went along to that. It was, I think it was a six day course, but just covering the basics. So uh, Colm and I had the advantage that we had both spent a number of years in management roles. So, you know, a lot of the management skills were known to us, whereas some of the people who started off would have been pure techies, and you know that would be all they know. So they'd probably have had a bigger hurdle to to leap. Yeah. But things like like the finance management, we literally tossed a coin. and I said, who's going to be responsible for finance? Yeah. And and I lost. Okay. So I um so, I had I was responsible for finance for the first like, so, yeah, four, yeah, four, four years. As well, as as what as I was year. yeah for okay. four years. I didn't even do accounting for my leaving cert. So um, it was quite funny. <laughs> Every year when we have our financial audit. Uh, I have to ask the auditors which ones are the creditors again? Are they the ones we owe money to or the ones who owe money to us? But Uh, uh, we got through that anyway, and uh, the training was good. We we also applied for and were accepted on a one-year course with, it was called the Genesis course uh, in the Rubicon Centre in CIT in Cork. I think Mm -hmm. now it's called New Frontiers. So it's a year-long incubation uh, program for new businesses. And what was really good about that was there were 16 new businesses. I think four of them were ex-Motorola and, and people from all other areas. And there was a great sense of camaraderie and, and helping there, helping each other people with different business ideas. And particularly if you're on your own, I think being involved in something like that is great because it's a tough slog. I wouldn't have had the courage to do it by myself. And For someone who is by themselves, getting involved in an incubation center means you can see there's other people like me too who are struggling and you know, you've got a bit of, uh, a bit of support there. And uh, so that was really good. And they brought in people as part of that course for the first three months. uh, It was one day a week in training, covering all aspects, legal aspects, HR aspects, uh, accounting aspects, which I took lots of notes at. Mm -hmm. um, All the different areas of uh, running a business. So it was really useful. In those early few years or 10 years
0: going, um, but in the first few years, is there anything that sticks out that you... You've learned from that, I guess, mm. anyone potentially listening that could be going through the same sort of uh, journey could could take something out of. Sure. So, a
1: big I know you take a big sigh <laughs> on that. So, sorry <laughs> for bringing this, these emotions back up here. I apologize. Yeah, so it's, it's, I'm gradually <laughs> coming to terms with it. So when we started the, the business, we hired uh, a bunch of our, our former colleagues as, as developers. We had an idea for a new product, Um which was a project management product. It was an enterprise PM tool. And we knew that with the knowledge we had, that if we could build a software tool that did things like let you automatically draw a work breakdown structure on a web page mm. and then would automatically convert that into a, a Microsoft project schedule. Sorry, I'm using too many project management terms here. Right. It basically automated a bunch of steps for you. Yeah. Plus would give... You, anyway, we, we built a really cool tool, right? Okay. It took us about a year and a half. Yeah. And our view was we'll build it, and then people will be blown away by it. Build it, and they will
0: come. Come, yeah. And watch too much uh, routines, <laughs> I
1: think, around that time. Now the issue was, by the time we had built it, uh, it was 2009, which was pretty much the depths of the recession here. Mm. And we went to uh, we ex- we launched it at a trade show in Phoenix, Arizona, in 2009. And we got great interest, great, you know, lots of interest and and, uh, people who were intrigued and wanted to follow up. Mm. But we realized we could just have easily have gone to that uh, conference with a PowerPoint presentation. Mm. We did not need the system to be working, whereas we didn't have the confidence to do that. And my my fantasy was that somebody would come along, would see it and would say, is this real? Show me the code. Prove to me it works and then we, and we could do that and yeah, they'd be yeah, happy. Yeah. In reality, people came and looked at it and said, all right, okay, that could be interesting. Mm. So we had spent a ton of money, uh, you know, relative to our size, yeah, uh, yeah, we, yeah. money we could barely afford to build this thing. Whereas if I was going back and doing that again, I would absolutely have gone mm. with vaporware or a mock-up or yeah. something just to use as a proof of concept. Okay. Rather than take the engineering approach that we had to make it work first and then yeah, sell it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was that was the challenge that's a very interesting
0: learning there and I guess subsequently have you done anything similar since but the other way around as you've mocked it up and marketed the shit out of it and then uh,
1: yeah so I would say I mentioned we weren't great at at, didn't have finance skills we also didn't have a lot of sales skills so um, we but we absolutely learned from that so in future, when we had ideas for products, we decided that we would basically sandbox it. We'd implement a quick and dirty version and use that as a sales tool then to see, you know, and not pretend it's the, the finished article, but say, this is what we can do. And within a couple of months, we can have a, a productized version of this if you think it's interesting. So that's the mode we took. And we, we probably developed about 10 different products like that. Um, and three of those became commercial products then so i don't know if that's a good rate or a terrible rate but uh, so in total we have uh, our software part of our business has delivered four different commercial products and some of those are in partnership with other companies some are standalone Um, and so our software is all over the world now Uh, like it's in australia new zealand i think that was the last the last continent we needed to sell it to to get it in there so yeah that's great it was great to, to get that but certainly it was a lesson that was hard hard learned in the, the first couple of years
0: are any major successes that you call out over the last few years as a result of other learnings that, that happened
1: yeah so we um, well, this is 2017 so in 2013 one of the, the products that we uh, developed got a lot of interest externally it's a cloud based product cloud orchestration marketplace product so that got external interests and investments, so we spun that off as a separate company. Right. And at that point, we decided that we would refocus Aspira as a service company rather than a vehicle to keep making new products. So uh, from there, it, the growth in Aspira has really been driven by that that ethos. The, we're no longer trying to think, how can we make a new mousetrap? Now we're thinking, what are the services that we can deliver to, to clients out there? And uh, we very much take the view that we've spent many years on one side of the desk. And now that we're at the other side of the desk, we want to behave the way we wish people had behaved to us. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I know it sounds pretty basic, but the number of companies that we deal with who have paid somebody to develop software for them and then don't own the source code or can't get the source code. Mm -hmm. To me, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So if we're doing software development work for somebody, they own the source code right Mm. they pay our bill they have the source code there's no issue no ifs buts and maybes and that's something that anybody who is working uh, and is outsourcing some software they should have that down as item one on their agenda right Mm. if if you're paying for the the thing you own it and there should be no no arm wrestle afterwards uh, with with whoever's done the the development for you
0: and that i would imagine helps build the partnership and trust with those customers as well you know that you're not getting into those sort of challenges further down the road if, yeah. if they're going in naive and don't think of this at the start yeah. Yeah. it would would have a positive effect there. So,
1: so one of the things that we do is one of our services is called virtual cto and basically for for smaller companies who you know might be might have an idea for a product but not have the technical capability to architect it or to to be able to build it out we'll do that for them uh, and we'll then hand over to them do the knowledge transfer. When you know, if, if it's successful and they want to build up their own team, we'll do that. And mm-hmm. we've done that now in a, uh, a number of instances. And it's it's kind of like it's satisfying to see those companies be yeah. successful, you know. And yeah. in some cases, they come back to us when they get more successful and they need uh, to augment their own workforce, and, and we're delighted to do that with them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other area that we do a lot of our service work is project management, and. Um, project recovery is something it's not pretty but sometimes we get involved where where companies have a project that hasn't gone well and they need somebody to come in and uh, try to get it back on track Mm -hmm. and i always say at the start of a new project there's a honeymoon period where everybody is happy and you've loads of time and it's nice and shiny and bright Mm -hmm. whereas going in for project recovery it's more rather than a honeymoon it's more like going back in after a couple have got together after a breakup right (laughs) there's a, a lack of trust there's pressure, there's... Relationship uh, counselling, maybe. Uh, there you go. It's, uh, certainly, uh, that, that's what it can be like. Yeah. So what we have found, and from going in and helping companies recover their projects, we found the most common reason that they've gone off the rail is a lack of proper scope management and scope uh, definition. So mm. people never sat down and defined the requirements clearly or agreed them, or else people never kept track of all the changes that come along from Mm. projects Mm. so that whole area prompted us to get into business analysis and we ended up going off and getting certified um, by the international institute of business analysis so that's an area now that we do a lot of work as well Mm. both project management and business analysis Um, and i guess the next big thing that that happened was just last year We found that when we were dealing with bigger and bigger clients, because our client base would be multinationals or public sector bodies primarily, so they'd be enterprise organisations. We found that we were leaving work behind; that we would go in and do some work on a project, but the the company might say to us, "Well, you know, we want to migrate to the cloud, or we need more servers. Can you help us?" Um, So we ended up buying uh, an IT services company last year and augmenting our our services so that we offer that now. managed service offering and that means we're able to offer a full end-to-end service provision so that you know it means when we go into clients now we can act independently we're not tied to any one technology or vendor so Mm -hmm. we're not going in with the answer already in our minds we're going in to see what their problem is and then uh, if we can solve it or at least advise them on how we think the best way to solve it is so Mm -hmm. so far it's it's worked well um i i met a former motorola colleague this morning and she was saying, oh you're flying and i'm saying Either you're flying or you're falling with style. You don't really know till you land. So uh, hopefully it's it's going well anyway. And it's really enjoyable. I have to say it's um, we tend to be focused on the challenges all the time rather than celebrating the successes. Mm-hmm. But when we do stop to just to step back, uh, you know it's it's so much more rewarding and enjoying than than I found working the multinational sector. Yeah. Right? It's uh, it's mm-hmm. real breath of fresh air. You've just preempted my next question.
0: So that was. Good to hear that you, you you're you're I suppose the master of your own destiny and there's obviously huge upsides to that and obviously extra risk but for you it and things are working out right so it's so far as you said uh, it looks positive but you're enjoying the the journey right?
1: yeah and I think this is where I kind of go back to my my upbringing uh, I guess I was. I was, and ironically, Cullen, my co-founder, he also uh, grew up in a self-employed family business thing. Right, right, so right. I wonder is there some link there? But certainly, see, yeah. growing up in that environment and knowing that it is a, a seven-day thing that you can't just switch off at five p.m. on a, a Friday, you know. So uh, I remember when I did start working in the multinationals, being amazed that people just walked out the door at five and mm. got paid for vacation and all this stuff. And yeah. My God, you know, this is a fantastic world so having that background certainly helped to uh in running running our own business because i guess the only time i don't have my phone with me is when i'm in the shower and having a teenage daughter means i have to have quick showers you know because she uses up all the water so um you have to be available a lot
0: just one question i have around that i I Mm -hmm. guess comparing the two and if you can remember back to when you were in the multinational it's not that Mm -hmm. long ago but the you know those long hours was there a difference in the feeling that you would have compared to doing the long hours now as your own boss? I'm, I'm presuming uh, what the answer might be, but uh, can, is that something that would stick
1: out or resonate with you? So you're probably assuming I'm going to say yes, but actually I'm going to say no okay. because um, it was interesting because when we were in the, the first year and doing that program for entrepreneurs, that was a question I was asked a lot. Oh, is it a lot tougher now? The answer was it wasn't. Because in the multinational, I was working long hours. I I owned a a division. I was responsible for big projects. To me, that felt like I owned it. You know, I I had a huge sense of personal ownership, and I put in just as many hours in that role as I did in my current role. So, and I know my, my father-in-law would uh, be the man who had a strong union background. And when he would come visiting us, he'd say, you know, I might come home at 10 o'clock at night. And he'd say, what are you doing? Yeah. Are you getting paid for that? And say, no, <laughs> there's, there's no payment for overtime. Yeah. And say, oh, they'll get rid of you, you know. And I would say, ah, oh, they won't, no. They could never survive without me. And of course, he was dead right. They did get rid of me. Yeah. And yeah. I was right. They didn't survive without me. <laughs> but certainly, you, you, when you're working in a multinational, you, um, I guess you, you, Buy into the Theory X, Theory Y thing. So I would have very much been a Theory Y person, i.e., a person who didn't look at the clock, who just focused on getting the job done, and got a lot of enjoyment from from work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I need to be careful because I think there's workaholic tendencies in there as well that I have to try to stay on top of. Yeah. But um, so I found I've always worked long hours. I have usually enjoyed it yeah. uh sometimes it gets a bit much so i haven't found a huge okay. difference to be okay. honest
0: okay that yeah it was for a different answer than i expected yeah. but it's good to to get the perspective um i know we're coming up near the end of the, the session I think there's been some really good takeaways there advice for some startups even advice for PMs like, like myself uh, and my background around scope management which I think is something that people can certainly do a better job in. I'd just like to maybe wrap up with a few kind of rapid fire questions just to get another non-work perspective if that's okay but I know you're you're smiling there so you're you're happy to go with that what would be a piece of advice that you've been given that sticks out that st- stayed with you or one that's come up recently that you find uh, very beneficial?
1: So something I was, that was drilled into me by my parents was treat other people the way you want them to treat you. And I think you can't go too wrong with that. It's something we've always tried to do.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. If you were thinking about habits, what are your good habits and what are your bad habits? One of uh, each of them good?
1: bad habits would be my time management and my personal messiness. As you see, my desk is all messy here. A little bit messy. So... Right? Um, I would, if I'm given a month to do something, I will usually ignore it for the first three weeks and then throw myself at it for the last week. So it's something that I'm aware of. And as a result, I've had to use my project management thing to to force myself to do better. So now if I'm given a task for a month, I'll put a little note in my calendar after each for each week to say... 25% done, 50% done. Mm. I'll still do nothing for the first week, but now I've got the reminder. And because mm. I'm a control freak, now I want to get back on track, you know? So oh. it's, it makes me do it a bit earlier. Is that a good or a bad habit, did you say there? It's a, a bad habit. habit? <laughs> it's a bad habit. And I've, because of that, I've been forced to try to address it, you know, and do something about it. Okay. Uh, good habits, good habits. Um, I guess consistency and loyalty. And again, hopefully that's a good habit. Yeah. I guess I believe in giving people time to get something done and giving people a chance and for people who've done a good job, you know, we're all going to run into problems and things that don't go right but I, I would always be willing to give people time and give them a chance to, to turn it around again. Okay.
0: If you were to give advice to your 20-year-old self, what would that potentially be?
1: Advice to my 20-year-old self? Which is not that long ago, obviously. So. Uh, yeah, this was just yesterday, yeah. Um, I would say listen to all the advice that you're given, and discard half of it.
0: Okay.
1: Very good. What
0: uh, What's the last movie you've seen, or a movie that sticks out that you like in any particular
1: reason? Uh, Kill Bill Two, on TV last week. So I'm a big fan of the Tarantino. the Tarantino stuff. Yeah, yeah. So quite a few people I'd like to try some of those moves on Kill Bill. <laughs> Hopefully, there's no bill in the workplace. Um,
0: um, look, that's been really insightful, Pat. I, I don't know why you were anyway worried about this. It's been it's been a, a thorough journey and enjoyable one um, in, into your career. Anything you'd like to just wrap up with? Any last words? And certainly, maybe to talk a bit about the company, how people could get in touch with you or look look the company up.
1: Sure. Like? So uh, thanks, Rob. It's time has flown by. So people uh, are free to get in touch with me. Our company is aspira so that's a s p i r a dot i e so if anybody is interested they can go on there and uh, our hashtag is uh, our twitter handle i should say is aspira hq so either way they can get in touch with me that way i guess the thing i would say for people who find that they're struggling to keep on top of their day-to-day work go and do a project management course you'll learn some tips and techniques there that make life easier and for people who are thinking they might like to start up a business, get off your ass and do it, right? Because it's, it's great fun. Um, the majority of startups don't succeed, but you learn so much in doing it that um, you're far more likely to succeed the next time. So I would say don't be afraid to give it a shot.
0: Brilliant. Nice closing words, Pat. So thanks again. And, uh, and uh, as you obviously said there, people can get in touch and hopefully they do. So thanks for tuning in, folks. Talk to you again soon hey folks so if you're at this point it means you got to the end of one of my episodes thank you for listening it's uh, it's great that you took the time to do so and i hope you got something out of it so i'm just going to wrap it up with a shout out for feedback as you know the show is pretty new and it's just growing evolving and your feedback is really important to me as i try and improve the show make it one percent better so please get in touch with feedback, with questions that you may like me to put to guests in the future. Do you have a guest in mind that would be uh, really interesting to have on the show? Please let me know. Are there things that I could improve on? Are there things that are working? And are there things that are not working? Even more so important. I'd love to hear about it. I'm very open to feedback. So do please take a couple of minutes to get in touch. How can you do this? You can email me rob at robofthegreen.ie the comments section on the website go there that's www.robofthegreen.ie and there's a feedback page i'm on twitter the handle is at rob of the green i'm on instagram rob of the green facebook there's a page called rob of the green and if you're in Cork and see me out and about please feel free to give me feedback verbally ideally positive or constructive if it's of a violent or negative nature either mental or physical please refrain from from that i don't think that would uh, would be good but um all the other stuff I'm, I'm very open to and the show is on itunes and stitcher so it'd be great if you subscribe there so you'll constantly get updated episodes when i roll them out so look that's it thanks again for listening i hope you have a great day and implement some of the learnings in your everyday lives thanks so much bye